Wow. Do you think he got it? I would love to call him now. He's an incredibly successful in his career. He still loves the Lord, but I'd love to call him now and go, hey, friend, <laughs> how are you doing with that one? Because what I'm finding out is not only do I commit the same sin twice, I commit them twice at the same time. I don't want to do that, but yet I do it. The sin that I don't want to commit, I can continue to keep on committing. What is it that's going on in me? Where is my hope? Where are the things that I need? It's in Christ. And we look and we have to go and run to Christ. So how is it that we're to live? He says you live by faith in one. You live by faith looking at one. So this morning we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be up on the screen. But it says this. This is God's very word. Beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. So the righteous shall live by faith. Well, we have to establish a couple of things first. We've already begun the work on it a little bit in the introduction. And that first question is, who are the righteous? Who are the righteous ones? Well, the righteous ones aren't perfect people. They're those who are perfected people. They are the ones who are made perfect in Christ. You know that the Bible refers to you in these kind of radical ways. Saint, righteous, daughter, son, heir of a king. It refers to you how the Father views you. And it says of you as you have faith in Christ that you, the righteous, are declared that way. And if you are declared that way, there is a manner in which we should be living. There's an effect uh, of who we are on how we live. So how is it that a righteous person lives? A righteous person, perfected by the work of Jesus Christ, not by his own works, lives by faith. So the next question then is an easy question. What's faith? What is faith? Have you ever thought about that? What's faith? How many, well, oftentimes I talk to folks and I'll begin a a spiritual conversation with them, try to lead it around uh, to being able to talk about spiritual things. And a response comes, well, Bill, I appreciate your position, but I'm not a person of faith. Now you see, that's, that's a statement that's not true, is it? At this current time, are all of you exerting faith? You are. Yeah, we joked about this yesterday. You're sitting in something, right? What are, you, what are your assumptions, your faith assumptions about that blue chair under you that is going to hold you? 
that you made a decision as you walked in, this chair is going to hold me. Every day when you drive in your car, you're making faith assumptions, aren't you? You're making faith assumptions that that person from another state who's driving now down here uh, will be able to find their way around and understand what in the world one of those little circles are and why in our, you know, and you're making faith assumptions that they'll stay in their lanes and that they won't come into your lane and, and that you'll make it to the grocery store and back. Every day we exert faith. We have faith assumptions. Faith is always about the object of it. And it's the same in the Christian life. You are a person of faith. The question becomes, what is the object of your faith? For that is the most important thing. You're not ever saved by your faith, the exercise of your faith, or you're not even sustained in your life by your faith. You're sustained by the object of your faith. And the object of our faith as a Christian is one person and one person only, Jesus Christ himself, of saying that I believe and trust in him. And that faith without getting too theological, that faith basically has three parts. It has a part in our, our knowledge. It says that you know something about him. If you're going to have faith in it, you should know something about it, right? Do you have a deep and understanding appreciation and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is? Of a theology. People say, Bill, don't give me all that theology. Just give me Jesus. You do realize that's an impossible statement, Right? I can't even begin to tell you about Jesus without understanding a theological framework to talk to you about him, about who his father is, uh, about what happened on the cross and the transaction there. Do you know that well enough? There's a knowledge that you need to have. Now, be careful. Many in the church only have knowledge. They only have that part of faith, a knowledge. We see that knowledge is only a piece. The second part of it is this. It says that you also have to have a heart response. There has to be a movement of your emotions. There has to be something towards uh, that knowledge, that it engages your heart, it engages your soul, not just your mind. So many people talk this way. Bill, it's eight inches away from reality. What are you saying? I got the knowledge. It hasn't affected my heart yet. It's eight inches away from reality. It, it's there, I know it, but I, I haven't, it hadn't gotten and sunk down into where it's beginning to overwhelm me and take over and begin to affect then this final part, and that is action. It's knowledge, it's emotion, and that sort of capturing of our hearts, but it's also then commitment. All of you right now have taken all three of those components and put them together because you're all sitting in the blue chairs. You acted upon the knowledge and the emotion, and you said, I'm going to act on this. See, in the Christian life, it's the same way. The Christian life is never about something in the past that you said, I made a commitment to Jesus, I know Jesus in the past, but it is a constant and regular working that out, a commitment regularly of saying, now see, I'm working it out, living it out every single day of my life, that it is affecting the way I live. It's affecting the way I think. It's affecting what I do. Because if it wasn't, if all three of those things aren't together, guess what James says in his, uh, his letter? He says, even the demons know God. Even the demons acknowledge who Jesus is, and guess what they do? They shudder. Because they have a knowledge, and it affects their emotions, but it hasn't at any time affected who they are. Too many people within the church stay with one and two. They say, well, you see, I got my fire insurance back here. I got my little card that's going to let me into heaven one day, but I don't want it to affect anything else about me. I'm just going to play that card at the end of the day. Why should I let you into my heaven? When I was six, I walked the aisle. 
Have you acknowledged me at any other point in your life? No, but at six, I walked the aisle. I even got baptized, and it was an incredibly emotional experience. I had Jesus bumps all over my arms. It was, it was a Rocky Mountain high. It was just awesome. It was this very emotional moment. I, I believed. Well, did it affect your life? I struggled in my own life at some level with this question. People ask me, Bill, when did you come to faith? When did you come to Christ? I was a little boy who grew up in the church. I grew up as a pastor's son. I acknowledged Christ as a little boy. But then somewhere around 14 or 15, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. My life, you couldn't have seen anything in my life other than church attendance that made you think that I was a Christian. Then I went to college. I even went to a Christian college, Presbyterian college. It's not a Christian college, but uh, it's a (laughs) Presbyterian college. And, uh, but you know, it's like, oh, I went to Presbyterian college and I went there and guess what? For four years, there was nothing in my lifestyle that would have made you think that I was a Christian. Then I graduated. I worked at a bank and there was nothing in the manner in which I conducted myself that would have made you think that I was a Christian. But yet if you asked me, Bill, are you a Christian? Oh yeah. Why? Oh, because when I was little, I accepted Jesus. Has anything in the interim affected you? Well, no. Now, I could outquote you on the Bible. I could out-argue you on theology, but it hadn't affected me. You see, for me, I think now the best way to describe it is I became a Christian after college. Finally, that head and that heart finally wrapped together now with a commitment to say, Christ, I'm going to follow you. I am going to live this way. I'm going to live in a manner that says, I believe what I say that I believe. I trust in whom I say that I trust. I acknowledge. You see, one person wrote it this way. What is the principal exercise of faith? What is it that faith should be doing? And it's very simple. Faith should be, the exercise of faith should be the contemplation of the glory of Christ. The greatest exercise of your faith should not be how you're going to live it out or all that stuff, but on the contemplation of the glory of Christ. That's why constantly you hear us say here, look back at the cross, look back to Christ, look back at him and see what he's done. Contemplate him and allow it to do something and affect you. And then take that contemplation and allow it to then affect your emotions and your affections and begin to then make you move towards certain things. Will you do it perfectly? Absolutely not. I don't either. But at least that's the trajectory of our life. That in that faith we're moving towards Christ. We're seeing him and acknowledging him in that. We're saying, I want to live by these faith assumptions that I make. I want to live in a way that shows Christ in my life. Because here's what you find out about your faith. Here's what you receive by faith. It says, the righteous live by faith and salvation comes by faith. Guess what you receive by faith? Not by your works, but by faith in Christ. Guess what he gives you? He says, you're now a child of Abraham. That's what this whole passage in chapter 3 acknowledges. You are a son or a daughter of Abraham. Now, that takes us all the way into the Old Testament. I don't have time to explain all of that. But those of you who've been in the Genesis class over there on the mornings, this really dovetails well because it said that God said to Abraham what? I'm going to make you father of nations and I'm going to bless you and I will be your God and you will be my people. And it was credited to Abraham It's righteousness. He believed. He didn't work. Circumcision came later. 
chapter 17 of Genesis. The law came even later than that. That's what Paul says in here. 430 years later, the law came. So righteousness was credited to Abraham by his faith in a God who said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And now if we believe, guess what? We get all those promises. And guess what the promises are? You're a child of God. You're a son or daughter of his. And you get all of the inheritance that was promised to him. You get it all. Part of that inheritance is this. You are justified. We've talked about that every week, that you are declared righteous before him. All your sins are forgiven. Every single one of them is forgiven in Christ Jesus. It says that you've been given all of the inheritance. There was a story. It's probably not a true story, but a story of a man who lived out in the desert of Yemen. And surveyors came from the government and they said, Sir, you in your little area here happen to be over one of the wealthiest and the largest deposits of oil anywhere in the world. And we'd like to buy your land from you. He said, Fine. They wrote him a check for $100 million. And they said, Now you have one year to move your family and to uproot yourself from this land. But here's $100 million. That man came, they came back a year later. And guess what they found? The man's still there in his tent. And that check hanging framed upon his wall. He didn't know what he'd received. Do you understand what you've received? It's more than a hundred million dollar check. You have received all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing that's in the heavenly places. That your name is now written in the Lamb's book of life with indelible ink. Marked by Christ. Safe in Christ. That you now have for yourself heaven thrown in one day with him forever. And in the meantime, this passage says that you also receive something even more, well, not more important, but something else. It also says that you receive the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that, but we don't highlight it enough. Where does the Holy Spirit now dwell? If you are declared righteous by Christ, where does it dwell? In you. The third person of the Trinity equal with God in power and in glory. Our church dangerously speaks an awful lot about the Father and an awful lot about the Son and very little about the Spirit. We get a little nervous about the Spirit and we we want to leave that Spirit stuff over here to the Pentecostals and to the Charismatics and to some folks over here because we don't really understand it. But what we need to see is, guess what? The Spirit is with you now. It's by the power of the Spirit that you live your life. It's by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God in you that you can believe. It's by that power of God who is with you constantly that you can say, Lord, can I see and it's all the beauties of, your, of who you are and help me to live a life that's honoring to you, that's by faith in you. That Spirit dwells in you. It's a gift to you. Every morning... Waking up and being able to say, Lord, I know my weaknesses today. But pour out your spirit and fill me afresh and anew today that I would see you. Help me to love my spouse. Help me to love my children. Help me to live. Help me to do all that you've called me to do in a way that brings you power and glory and honor to your name by your spirit which dwells in me. You see, that's what Paul's talking about. The righteous live by faith. They live with a view of something beyond themselves. They have constantly in their minds the view of a cross. A cross which says, it's never been about you. It's always been about him. It's always been about his completed work 
on your behalf. Just believe. You're going to be invited to this table in a moment. This table is for righteous people. Will you come? Notice what I didn't say. It's not for perfect people. This table is for those who are declared righteous by Christ, who have placed their faith in him and who acknowledge, I constantly and regularly mess up, but yet I cling to him. I don't take advantage of his grace, but in the midst of his grace, I want to live a life that honors him, that looks to him, that trusts in him. That's what this table's about, folks. This table is for those who are broken. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This table's about rest. This table is about a promise fulfilled. Because you know what God said to his son? If you go live that perfect life, I promise that all who believe in you, I'll take care of forever. They make it all the way to the end. And not one of them will be lost from my hand. No, not one of them. I will keep them safe forever. That's what draws us here. The Father's relationship with the Son, then given to us by the Spirit, says to us, Come. Come and rest in Him. I've talked to a lot of you. You're tired. There's a lot going on in your worlds. You're worn out. You're trying and you're trying and you're trying. And what you need to hear today is this. Let, le- let Christ do the trying for you. Let him be your strength. Submit yourself to him. When it says yoke, it means would you walk under his leadership. Let him guide you and trust along the way that he's going to take you to the best place possible for you. Do you trust him today? If you do, this table's for you. It's not a Presbyterian table, but it is a Christian table prepared for all who trust in the King. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a great hymn that we sang uh, last month at communion, and we're going to sing each month uh, at communion, this invitation to the King's table, to the table of the King. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we wouldn't be a people just of head knowledge, that we'd be able just to argue about truth and theology. But we wouldn't just be a people who are all about the heart and emotion and get all fired up for Jesus, but it doesn't affect really a manner in which we live. That we would be a people who bring all those together and it affects our hearts, that we would see Jesus in all of his beauty and that we would live in humility and brokenness before him, knowing that we have been given the very Holy Spirit in our lives, a guarantee of all of the promises. Father, we thank you, and we thank you for the invitation to your table, the table of the king. We know we're not worthy, but yet we come because of Christ's worth. We come because of his perfection, and we come because you invite us. We praise you and we thank you. Amen. Let's sing. Let's stand this morning and sing together. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made
to the table of a king. I've never gotten invited to the table of a mayor or a governor or a president, but the king of the universe has invited you. In the Old Testament, it said, go out and, and, and there's a table prepared. Go and invite all the dignitaries to come. Go and invite all the important people to come and come to the table. And guess how many people came? None came. 
They thought they were too important. They didn't see their need to come. So he said, go out into the byways, into the highways. Go out and invite all of those who are broken, all of those who could never believe in a million years that they'd be invited to a king's table and go invite them to come. Folks, that's us. We've been invited to this table. When I consider this, of what God's done, what he knows about me, and yet he still says, Bill, come. When I realize what it cost God to love me. You know that if I was the only person in the world, Jesus still would have had to die for me. And it's the same with you. He loved you that much. You are that precious to him. That he gave his son for you. So he invites you to come. With humility and contrition come. And so this morning, we're going to pray together a confessing prayer of saying, we don't deserve this table, but God, you've invited us anyway by Christ. So pray with me. It's printed here for you. Let's pray. Eternal God, whose covenant with us is never broken, we confess that we fail to fulfill your will. Though you have bound yourself to us, We refuse to bind ourselves to you. In Jesus Christ, you serve us freely, but we refuse your love and withhold ourselves from others. We do not love you fully or love one another as you command. In your mercy, forgive and cleanse us. Lead us once again to your word and table and unite us to Christ, the bread of life and the vine from which we grow in grace. God, as we come, hear the loud cries of our silence and minister to our hearts.